Words are important, aren't they? And knowing their right definition and use helps us in our communication. I was reading a letter to the editor in a Christian magazine recently that was thanking the editor for an article in a past issue. Apparently in the article, the editor spoke about the importance of rearing children. And the letter writer was saying, thank you for reminding us that we don't raise our children, we rear them. I had never thought about that difference before. I'm just trying to get it done one way or the other. But I guess it's important to use the right words, isn't it? And especially when we're trying to communicate our thoughts to other people. The title of the message today incorporates a word that is often misunderstood, the word worldliness. We come to understand as Christians that it means something bad. We know that Christians aren't supposed to be worldly, but what does that mean? Is worldliness defined by the clothes that one wears, or by the length of one's hair, the music he listens to, or the makeup she puts on her face, or certain amusements that we're involved in? The word worldliness, as you probably know, comes from the word world-likeness. So to be worldly means to be world-like, just to be, as to be godly means to be godlike. So, does that mean that if I drive a car and eat hamburgers and kiss my date, that I'm worldly? Because the world does all those things, too. What does it mean to be worldly? It may help us to understand what the Bible says regarding the word world in the first place. This word world in the Greek language is the word cosmos, which is not unfamiliar to us. Cosmos is the opposite of chaos, another transliterated Greek word in the English language. We understand chaos. That's what home is like on Sunday mornings if you're trying to get ready for church. That's chaos. Cosmos is just the opposite of that. It means that which is ordered. The word cosmos in the New Testament is used of the earth as a created object for God's glory. It's also used of people. The world in the sense of all of humanity. John 3.16 uses that word in that way. But the word is also used in a negative sense. Cosmos is used of the kingdom of Satan. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verses 3 and 4 we are reminded that if our gospel is hid, it is hid to those who are lost in whom the God of this cosmos has blinded the minds of those who believe not. The God of this world is what Satan is called there. In 1 John 5, 19, John says, And the whole world, the whole cosmos, lies in the lap of the wicked one. In other words, the world, the cosmos, is his baby. And he's rocking it. He put it together and he's caring for it. The world, in this negative sense, is the dominating present order of things, which controls the mass of unregenerate humanity, and which is also headed by Satan. The world is defiantly and determinedly opposed to God, and serves as an invisible government over the governments of the world. 
The world is a system of evil that imposes itself on the world that we know. It is a system. It is characterized by moral and spiritual darkness that leads to disobedience and hostility toward God. Though the world often appears outwardly as cultured, intelligent, scientific, elegant, and even religious, its basic underlying principles include greed, power, self-ambition, and illicit sensual pleasure. And so you see, the world takes one form outwardly, which makes it seem very acceptable to any reasonable person. But inwardly it is corrupt because its basic principles come from the devil. Therefore I want to say today that the world is the empire of the evil one. The system of thought and values that excludes God and controls all unregenerate people. If you're a child of God, you must not love the world. Would you turn to our text, please, in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Verse 15 is our memory verse for today, which I trust that you've hidden in your heart. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him, says John. He goes on to say, and I'm reading now from the New American Standard, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. If you are a child of God, you must not love the world or the things in the world. That is a command that is delivered to all of us. I think coming to grips with the following three facts will help you guard against entanglement in the world. The first fact is this. One cannot love God and the world simultaneously. The last part of verse 15 makes that clear, doesn't it? One cannot love God and the devil's world system simultaneously. You don't really believe that, do you? If we really believed it, then why do we so regularly practice what the verse says can't be done? Or at least try to practice it. Because we are convinced in our 20th century Christian minds that somehow we can find a balance. We can love God enough to keep him off our backs and we can love the world enough to still have fun and fit into it. That's really what we believe, many of us. What a tragic misconception about God our way of thinking reveals. In fact, the Word of God says that the Father and the world system 
are direct opposites one of the other. The world and the Father are mutually exclusive. The nature of the Father is that he is holy. The nature of the system is that it's evil. Each contradicts the other. And both demand total allegiance of those who follow. The Father and the world are rivals. They are not equal. Don't misread that. But they are rivals. As you cannot be here and there, as you cannot be present or absent and absent, as you cannot be dead and alive, so the Bible says you cannot love God and love the world system simultaneously. We are warned that to develop an affection for the world is to commit a heinous sin in the eyes of God. James talks about this if you would turn back just a few pages. As you're backing up, go past 1 Peter and you're there to James. And look in the fourth chapter, the fourth verse. James uses shocking language. He says, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship, that is affection, with the world is hostility toward God? Understand he is not saying that to have friends in the world is sin. That that makes us hostile toward God. That is not what he's saying. We ought to have sinner friends. People who are not Christians, but who know us and we know them and we're developing relationships with them. But what he is saying is, do you not know that to develop affection for the system that controls those unsafe friends, that that is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. My friend, that is strong language. If a person chooses, as an act of his will, to be a friend of the system, by that act he is also making himself an enemy of God. We cannot love the world, system, and God simultaneously. It is impossible. Going back to John, I want you to notice the strength of his statement in verse 15. In the last part of the verse he says, If anyone loves, present tense, if anyone as a pattern of life, if anyone habitually loves the world, it says the love of the Father is not in him. What is John saying? Well, I believe directly what he's saying is that if a person is characterized in his life as an ongoing pattern, as loving the system, he is giving evidence that he's not a genuine child of God. But the fact is, a genuine child of God can fall into the habit and the pattern of loving the system. That's why he begins the verse directed to Christians. 
by saying, stop loving the world, because that's literally what he says. They were in the process of doing that. Now I want to repeat, if someone does that habitually, it is the pattern of their whole life, and continually they are loving the system. They are giving evidence that the love of the Father is not in them. But even one who has the love of the Father in him, who is a a Christian, can fall into loving the world. And that's what John warns us about. Stop loving the world, he says. Stop loving it. We cannot love the world and the Father at the same time. Who could imagine a Christian deliberately setting out to be a contradiction? Does any of us do that? Do we deliberately want to be a contradiction to our deepest identity? I would think not, if we're in our right mind. We really want to be consistent. But the fact is that we become worldly. We begin to love the world through subtlety and through deception. It is a slow process of compromise and accommodation, little steps that we hardly notice until at some point we lift our head up and we look and we see where we've come from and where we were and what God really wants of us. And suddenly we see that we have slipped And we have begun to love the world that God tells us not to love. The world is the empire of the evil one, of Satan. Do not love his empire. You cannot love that empire and God at the same time. But I see a second fact here that we need to grapple with, and that is that what the world desires is contrary to what is of God. John proceeds to say all that is in the world. By that he's not talking about the created things, the mountains, the lakes that we enjoy on vacation. He is not talking about the animal kingdom, all that is in the world. In fact, he defines for us all that is in the world. He uses three phrases here that highlight the snares used by the world to trap you and to trap me. These three phrases describe the motivations of the system, or the goals, you might say, that it establishes for living. These three snares hold captive the unregenerate people living on this planet. It is what the world desires, all that is in the world, encapsulated in three brief phrases. The lusts of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Let's think about those for a moment. The lust of the flesh That is, the cravings arising from our bodily appetites. That's one of its meanings. Even those appetites and desires of our bodies that are good and holy and given to us by God 
can be twisted and perverted by the world to an evil purpose. We have to be on guard against that. But the lust of the flesh goes beyond just our bodily appetites. It speaks about the lusts of our selfish desires. The Dictionary of New Testament Theology puts it this way. It's the outlook oriented toward self. That which preserves its own ends in self-sufficient independence of God. The lust of the flesh. It is the selfish satisfying of my own desires. The lust of the flesh. It is what is oriented toward me. And what fulfills me and what's good for me, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, that is the cravings arising from what we see, a desire to possess, it is covetousness, the lust of the eyes is greed. This phrase strikes at the heart of the world's commercialism and advertising. The use of glitter and show that captivates and motivates one to go out and get that product. It's the root of the credit crisis in our country that has undermined the financial stability in many homes. The lust of the eyes. You see it, you want it, go get it. It's what makes us miserly. It's what makes us unwilling to share with others so that we might have for ourselves what we want. God condemned his Old Testament people for idolatry. And we are warned in this age of a religion that all of us can fall into, a false religion. Another kind of idolatry. It is called covetousness which is idolatry, says the Apostle. It is a false religion. When I begin to live by what motivates the world, when I begin to set my standard as being what I see is what I want, and I will get that at any price, even if I have to borrow for it, even if I have to risk my future, my family for it, I want that. The lust of the eyes. And then the boastful pride of life. That is the exalting, pompous boasting of a person that has the boasting that has no basis in reality. It is exaggeration that is intended to impress. You've heard that kind of person, haven't you? Maybe that person is your roommate. Maybe you work with that kind of person. Maybe you am that kind of person. The kind that stretches the truth beyond any facsimile of reality. I mean, it's not really a lie, is it? It's just, you know, putting the positive side forward. It's just brushing it up a little bit to take the edges off. And we, you know, we put it out here. And our whole purpose in that is to impress other people. 
We want them to think that we're the greatest, that we're the most successful, that of all of those, we're the most popular, that we are the highest earning person. We think it's important to have that degree at the end of our name. That on the stationery it says, Dr. So-and-so. I recently got some material across my desk of a gentleman who is seeking to establish a counseling practice in the Twin Cities area. And made a point calling himself doctor and putting Ph.D. after his name. I began to go through the list of his credentials. I found out where he got his master's and his Ph.D. I've never heard of either one of them. Degree mills. But it's a Ph.D. And highly advertised. But it's worthless. But it's impressive. It's got the glitter there. You can boast in it. The boastful pride of life. By the way, it's not wrong to have a degree. It's not wrong to be the greatest. It's not wrong to earn the most or to be the most successful salesman. It's not wrong to do any of those things. We ought to be ambitious. And we ought to do the very best that we can. But the point is, when we take that to the extreme and we begin to to boast in it, that's when it becomes like the world. Ambition is a good trait. But when it's geared towards self-promotion to attain recognition or position, then it becomes worldly. Worldliness is living for passion, the lust of the flesh. Worldliness is living for possessions, the lust of the eyes. Worldliness is living for power, the boastful pride of life. And he says that kind of living is not of the Father. All that is in the world is not of the Father. Therefore, don't love it. Do not love the system. Because what it's made up of is not of the Father. We might ask the question, then, what is of the Father? Turn over to chapter 4, verse 7 and 8, and you'll find out. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. According to verse 7, what does come from God is love. I don't have time to develop this. But you go back and look at those those three phrases in chapter 2. And you will find that one who is truly living in love cannot participate in any of those. Because those things are of the world. And we who are of God must live in what is from God, love. And so the point is very clear. What the world desires is contrary to what is of God. Therefore, do not love the system. But there's a third fact we need to look at, and that's found in verse 17. To love the world is to waste one's life 
on the meaningless. Not just the the trivial, because that has some meaning to it. But to love the world is to waste one's life on the meaningless, absolutely meaningless. What tragedy surpasses the living of one's life within the world's values and its measurements of success? Only then to die and to enter eternity and to realize that it accomplished nothing that was worthwhile. For when one enters eternity, he leaves behind the possessions and all of the passion and all of the pride. It's gone. It's stripped away. And he stands before God. To live for the world is to waste one's life on the meaningless. Notice the contrast here. The world is passing away and its lusts. That's the one side. John says this in a rather interesting way. He says the world is already putrefying. He says the world is already in the process of decay and corruption. It's like a corpse that has not been buried yet. Not a very pleasant thought. The world is corrupting, he says. Have you ever seen a body that had not been buried in time? It's not a very pleasant sight. We bury bodies for good reasons. There is a corruption that sets in at that point. He says here that the world system is corrupting. It's decaying right before us. Why love it? (laughs) Why love something that's in the process of decomposition? The world is passing away and it's lusts. Do you smell it? What he's saying here involves far more than the archaeological ruins of past civilizations or the decaying monuments in our own generation. It's the system that is decomposing and which is creating such a stench in God's universe. The system is passing away. That's one side. But he says, the one who does the will of God abides forever. one sense, I think he's talking here about a Christian. Because the will of God is that we believe in his son, the Lord Jesus. But by way of application, I want to take it broader than that. I'll make three quick observations about the will of God. The first observation is this, that the will of God is a way of life. The one who does, present tense. Sometimes we look upon the will of God as a destination that we arrive at. But actually the will of God is the journey. Remember that. Because some of you are looking at certain destinations and you're saying, Oh God, what is your will about that? But what about up there? What do you want me to do then? 
The real thrust of the will of God is today. What are you doing today? The will of God is a way of life. The second observation I would make is that the will of God is an individual adventure. He talks about the one who does the will of God. We cannot determine God's direction for another, except in the word, as God tells all of us what his will is. And he does in many instances. But with regard to our particular purpose in being in this world, we must make our own decisions under the direction of God's Spirit, and then we must give account to Christ one day personally. He says, the one who does the will of God. Just one at a time. The emphasis is on the individuality of it. And I might point out that there's a certain loneliness that occurs here. We can be in groups and we like fellowship and we want counsel from other people, but when it comes right down to it, you, my friend, are responsible to God, not the group. The decisions you make is not the responsibility of your counselors, it's you. And particularly when one decides to take his stand or her stand against the system around him. It gets pretty lonely to do the will of God in that situation. The one who does the will of God. Would you be one? I don't know if there are two or three or ten others. But would you be one who will do the will of God? And not love the world? The one who does the will of God abides forever. The third observation is that the will of God holds promise. Not the world, friend. There's no promise with something that's already dead and in the process of rotting. There's no promise in that at all. But there is promise in the will of God. The one who does the will of God abides forever. That is in total contrast to what is passing away. The child of God will go on forever and forever in his worship and service of God. We might also point out that the work, the life's significance of the child of God goes on forever and ever too. All of us long for significance in the world. That's part of being human. God has built that into us. We want to do something so that when we're gone, people will know that something is missing. (laughs) And we want to leave behind something that's going to make a difference. If that's truly your desire, there's one way and only one to do it. And that is by doing the will of God. Abel being dead yet speaks, says the writer of Hebrews. Gone hundreds and hundreds of years, still speaking because he did the will of God in his life. So why love the world? Why live for the world when you can live for what counts forever? Don't waste your life on the meaningless. Don't be taken in by its glitter, by the perfume that Satan has poured over the corpse to try to make you think that it's attractive. 
Don't be taken in by that lie. Do not live for what is meaningless, but live for the eternally significant. Invest your life in the will of God. Enjoy His smile now and His reward in eternity. Now having talked about the world a little bit, perhaps we're in a better position to understand what worldliness is. Personally, I like the definition of Warren Wiersbe in his book, Be Real. He says, anything in a Christian's life that causes him to lose his enjoyment of the Father's love or his desire to do the Father's will is worldly and must be avoided. And so when you ask, what is worldliness? It's not as easy as getting out a list of rules or the ruler to measure one's hair length or skirt length. It's not as easy as that. If we're going to be serious about finding out what worldliness is, we've got to ask ourselves some tough questions. Is there something in my life that is causing me to lose the enjoyment of God's love? Or to lose the enjoyment of doing His will? Oh God, show me where the lust of the flesh, for living for myself, dominates me. Lord, reveal to me where the lust of the eyes, where covetousness and greed have taken possession of your territory in my life. Oh God, expose in me the pride and the boastful exaggerations intended to impress people. For all of that is worldliness. And give me repentance of that. It is important for us to examine ourselves and to see how the empire of evil and its lord of darkness have deceived us and subtly, subtly caused us to accept the world's thoughts and the world's values as our own. You cannot love the Father and the world simultaneously. What the world desires is not of God. To live one's life for the world is to live for the meaningless. May God write those facts upon our hearts and make a difference in the way that we live this week. Let's pray. Isaiah was perhaps the most godly, righteous man in his generation. But when he stood in the presence of God, he said, Woe is me, for I am an unclean man. I have unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of an unclean people. I would dare to say that the most godly person in this room today has to some extent been stained by the world. James says that pure religion and undefiled religion is this, 
he lists a couple of things. One of them, to keep oneself unstained from the world. Friend, all of us have repenting to do. God help us to do it. Father, you have called us out of the world. And yet we live in it. But I fear that the world also lives in us too much. As the people that you have called out and sanctified to serve you, I pray that you lovingly will examine us and wherein we are worldly. May we face the facts and be repentant. For Father, you have called us to love you. Oh, Father, forgive us when we become adulterers. God, forgive us. When we become defiled and polluted by the world you've called us to live in. I pray that you will cause our hearts to respond today with deep desire be cleansed and to start anew and afresh and to be done to be done with the affair that we've carried on with the world system for who would be seriously in love with a corpse that's decaying But alas, we have often been deceived. Open our eyes and focus them on heaven. And may we set our affection on things above and not on things on the earth. In Jesus' name, amen.